Our scripture today is Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we've been making our way through Jonah, and uh, we've been kind of pausing these last few weeks between chapter 2 and chapter 3, if you will, of Jonah, between when Jonah was uh, spit up out of the fish onto the beach and finally made his way to Nineveh, as God had told him to do, but the responsibility, you know, of which he had run away from prior to that. And we've been kind of pausing in between these two chapters before we pick up with chapter 3 again next week and kind of ask ourselves, okay, Jonah, you know, he went to Nineveh. He, he was faithful to go, but he kind of looked like he went reluctantly. You know, he didn't really go with God's heart for the people of Nineveh. That's pretty clear by the time you get to the end of Jonah. So we're asking in this little interlude, what will help us move from reluctance to faithfulness when it comes to bearing witness to the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ? And last week we talked about prayer. And specifically, the need to pray the way that, God instru- that Jesus instructed us to pray, to pray for the kingdom to come. So, thy kingdom come, prayer. This week, we're talking about proclaiming the kingdom, looking at our need to tell people the good news about Jesus Christ. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. As we've mentioned already, it's a season in which the church historically remembers the first Advent or the first arrival of Jesus Christ, the time of his birth, and then looks forward also to his second Advent, to his second coming when he comes back to make all things new. And both those ideas of proclaiming the kingdom, which we're looking at this morning, and Advent, the Advent of Jesus Christ, Jesus coming as king, come together in our passage this morning. In the early chapters of Matthew, Matthew is all about linking Jesus to the Old Testament. You've got that long genealogy in the beginning of Matthew where um, Jesus draws a line from Abraham, all the, or Matthew draws a line from Abraham all the way to Jesus. Uh, but then you also have Matthew quoting prophets all throughout these first few chapters. And he's doing that here in uh, Matthew chapter 4. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 9 to show that Jesus is coming in fulfillment of prophecy. What Isaiah foretold, that people walking in darkness would see a great light, came to pass with the coming of Jesus Christ. And Matthew also tells us that it was at this time that Jesus began to proclaim the kingdom. So we saw it in that passage in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, just little parentheses here. 
Next week, we're going to talk about that first word, if you will. We're going to be back in Jonah chapter 3, but in Jonah chapter 3, we're going to be talking about repentance, what repentance looks like. Ultimately, as we have opportunity to come to that point in our proclamation of the kingdom, it's what we're calling people to do, all right? So if it feels like this week, you know, Mark, all you're talking about is story, story, story. Yes, I am, but that idea of coming to the point of, really, this is a life and death issue, and calling people to turn from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ. We'll be coming back to that as we look at chapter 3 next week from Jonah. However, it's here, Matthew tells us, that Jesus began to preach this gospel of the kingdom, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus would do that all throughout his ministry. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus said that this gospel of the kingdom... Same phrase, this gospel of the kingdom, the good news that in Christ God has drawn near to rescue his people and reestablish his peaceful rule on earth, that message would go forth to the ends of the world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. Jesus dies, he rises from the dead, he ascends into heaven, and his disciples, now apostles, take up that message, the gospel of the kingdom, and they go to their Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, and we're called to do the same. The early church did it. You see in, in Acts, you read the history of the church, and it's the history of Christian people simply going out and telling their neighbors about Jesus Christ, and we're called to do the same thing as well. The problem is less and less of us believe that we're actually individually called to proclaim the gospel. I'm probably not talking to, to any of us in this room and, and that are fall in that category of not thinking that we're called to do this. But the fact of the matter is there's an increasing number of believers who believe that it's actually not their responsibility to tell other people about Jesus. It's a recent uh, Barna survey. Bar the Barna group has done a lot of surveys looking at Christians throughout the uh, throughout recent history and engaging what people believe. And they compared in 2018, um, they did a survey comparing uh, surveys that they had done in 1993, so 25-year span. And they looked at differences between what people believed in 1993 and what people, Christians, believed in 2018. And when it came to the simple question of believing that Christians have an individual responsibility to tell people about Jesus, right? That simple question. In 1993, 89% of Christians believed that that was a responsibility that all Christians have. In 2018, that number was down to 64%. So we're getting to the point where only half of those who are Christians actually believe that they have a responsibility to tell other people about Jesus Christ. In the meantime, we not only live in a time, but we also live in a place, we all do, where opposition to the gospel is great. Another Barna survey looked at the most post-Christian cities in America. Now, how do they define post-Christian? What they did was set up a number of, of metrics, 16 different uh, questions, if you will, in this survey in which they asked things like, do you identify as an atheist? Um, have you ever made a commitment to Jesus Christ? Have you been to church in the past year? Um, do you agree that faith is important in your life or do you disagree? And as they tabulated all the results of those questions, again, nationwide survey, they listed the top 100 post-Christian, based on those metrics, 
cities in America. Rochester came in number eight on the list. We also live in an age when confidence in organized religion is at an all-time low. I could pull out stats on this, but let me just tell you an anecdote, a personal story from just last night. I'm on Facebook last night. I get a, a, actually a message from a friend in Missouri about a former high school classmate of ours in Michigan who had posted on her wall uh, frustration because she, who I, I don't know, I haven't talked to her since high school, so that was, it's been a while, right? <clears throat> But she, she had posted on her wall that she, I assume, is not a, a church-going person. I don't know if she's a Christian. But she had gone to uh, a pastor. She was struggling with some things. Uh, her, her, I guess her brother had died in the past year. And um, this pastor, basically, she, her impression was he kind of blew her off. You don't go to my church. Um, I don't really have time to talk to you kind of a thing. And she posted her genuine, you know, understandable frustration and sorrow that that had taken place. But then in the comments, just all the people who had commented, you can't trust the church, you can't trust pastors, nature is my religion, I go to nature for my church, you know, the, the church is full of hypocrites. I mean, just vitriol, I mean, all these different statements about how you, the church just can't be trusted. And, and statistics back that up, and it's not hard for us to understand uh, given the track record of the church in recent years, why that could be the case. So the result, you know, the result for each of us is that we are incredibly reluctant to share our faith, to tell people about Jesus, to proclaim the good news of his kingdom. But here's the thing, we are actually like the people that Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 9. Spiritually speaking, we are people who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. We are people who dwelt in the shadow of death. And we have seen a great light. We have seen Jesus Christ, the light of the world. The question is, what will compel us now to tell people about him? And once compelled to do so, where do we, where do we begin? Right? Both of those questions... What will compel us to tell others about Jesus? And once compelled to do so, where do, be, where do we begin? This passage from Matthew actually helps us answer those questions, even as we consider a way forward when it comes to proclaiming the kingdom in our day and age. So I mentioned earlier, I'm going to talk about story. I'm going to talk about story. I think there are three stories that we need to become intimately familiar with if we're going to faithfully proclaim the gospel in our day and age. The first is God's story. The second is your own story. And the third is the story of others. So the need to know God's story, the need to know your story, and then third, the need to know the stories of others in order to faithfully proclaim the kingdom. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you uh, this morning, we do pray that you would be with us, that by the power of your spirit, through your word, you would be at work in us. Lord, would you make us people who, who love you because all that you have done for us and your son to rescue us from our sin and who as a result of this great love for you have a growing love for others such that it increasingly becomes our burden to introduce people we love to the one who has loved us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, every single week, 
I feel like I'm talking about things that I'm not yet fully practicing, right? And this is one of those weeks, to be sure. I am not an evangelist. Uh, I'm with, I mean, most, some of you are, are far more adept at what I'm talking about than I am. And so very much a fellow traveler with you when it comes to uh, this call to proclaim the kingdom. So we're journeying here together a little bit. But first, know God's story. What did Jesus mean when he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? What was he saying? What he was saying is that in him, God was drawing near to rescue his people, to reestablish his rule on earth, which would result in peace on earth. When Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he was not simply saying, I am coming so that people can have their sins forgiven. He was also not saying, I am coming to make the case for the existence of God through profound teaching and sound arguments. He was saying, in me, God is drawing near in order to rescue people from their sin, in order to reestablish his rule, the result of which, which would mean peace, peace on earth. He called... He was coming to rescue his people. The history of, of the Old Testament is the history of God's people as a result of their own sin and as a result of living in a fallen, sinful world, falling into bondage, into slavery, and needing rescue, often as a result of God sending them there so that they would recognize their great need for him and cry out to him for deliverance, cry out to him for rescue. That cry for rescue is found throughout the Old Testament. It's seen in the Psalms, both at a corporate, you know, kind of people of Israel level and at an individual level. God, where are you? God, will you rescue me? And Jesus came saying, I am the one who has come to rescue you. He came to reestablish his rule. Sin entered the world. There was this perfect universe, this perfect place in which Adam and Eve dwelt with God in perfect peace, with God, with one another, with the created order, within them very, their very selves, no division of heart when it came to their love for God and one another, no disordered loves, as Augustine would say. But sin came in, God's rule was, if you will, shattered and people experienced the curse. Jesus came to reestablish God's rule. The result would be peace. Not peace simply in the sense of absence of conflict, but peace in the biblical sense of shalom, the reintegration of everything that God had once perfectly integrated but had been violated with sin. Peace with God restored. Peace between people restored. Peace with creation restored. And peace within our very selves restored. That's, in essence, what it meant for Jesus to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It, it all happened just as the prophets had foretold. Matthew, as I mentioned before, hints at that in these early chapters. It happened as it was foretold. It did not happen as it was expected. People had their own idea of what the king would be. 
This baby who was born in Bethlehem, who was born into poverty, who, 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 who had not a place to lay his head. The rock was his pillow. I mean, all these, all these, and then ultimately we go to the cross and die. This king came as prophesied, but not as expected. People were expecting a ruler who would restore the kingdom to Israel and drive out the Romans. And God came in Christ to be a king who would restore his people to himself, conquer sin and death, and then the meek would one day inherit the earth. His crown was a crown of thorns, not of gold and fine jewels. His victory was won on a cross, not on the field of battle. His resurrection was his coronation as king over all, and his promise was that he would return and that he would make all things new. In the meantime, that offer of peace, of restoration, reconciliation with God, of all things being made, do, made new one day, that promise of peace goes out to all who will receive it. Now listen, if you ask the question, what will compel you to go? Before you get into what do you say or where do you begin, what will compel you to go? It is you having a vision for the kingdom and the fact that you have been incorporated into this kingdom. To be a Christian is not just to have personal sin forgiven. As awesome as that is, if that were it, that would be enough. But Jesus Christ came as we just came to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. The curse doesn't just extend to you and your broken relationship with God. It extends to all things. So joy to the world, right? Metaphorically, even the rocks and the trees will cry out with joy when Jesus Christ returns because peace God's perfect shalom will characterize all things. We have that in part now. It is coming in full. As, as we recognize, that's my story. I'm, I'm part of that story now. That we begin to find ourselves compelled to tell other people our story. To tell other people God's story. So what does it mean for us to proclaim that kingdom? It is to tell God's story in the context of personal relationships. See, we, we see Jesus going and preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We think of the apostle Paul, we think of Peter, we think of you know, the Billy Grahams of this world, we think of those who have gone and, and on, on big stages said big things, bold things to people. The early church, the vast majority of Christians the book of Acts tells us essentially went, as John Stott said, gossiping the gospel. They just talked about Jesus in the course of their everyday life. They talked about what it meant for them to be part of this new thing that God was doing, this great rescue mission in which God was redeeming people and redeeming the whole earth and would one day return to make things new. The essence of the message, God is drawn near in Christ to rescue his people and reestablish his rule, which will result in peace on earth. That's God's story, and if you're a Christian, that's your story. That is the only thing that will compel you to go. So know God's story. Second, know your story. Know your story. It is so important to know your story 
It, it is good to be able to trace the narrative of God's story throughout the Bible. I, I want to encourage you to do that. You know, if you are a student of your Bible, that will begin to be something that you catch over time. If you want to catch that a little bit quicker, read the children's storybook Bible that is in the Jesus storybook Bible that's in your pew. It does a great job of capturing this story of what God is doing in a way that centers on Jesus Christ. There are great books that you can read, books like one of my favorites, Far As the Curse is Found by Michael Williams that captures this story. Our last discipleship class on Sunday morning that just finished last Sunday was all about God's story and how important it is to know God's story, right? So that's good and necessary. It's good to be able to make the case for Christianity, right? To be able to uh, respond to so many of the reasons that people have to disbelieve the truth of Christianity. It's good to be able to unpack and explain the Christian views on things like human sexuality and, and uh, you know, uh, relationships among different races and, and creation care and all these different kinds of things. However, what will prove to be most effective? And I want to say it's knowing and being able to tell your story. Now, I want to give two examples, one from the Bible one more recent, one a woman at the well with Jesus, the other a college student on a liberal campus. First, the woman at the well. John chapter 4, you are familiar with the story. If not, go back and read it. Uh, here's this woman who we know from the fact that she is at this well in the middle of the day alone is an indication that she is uh, a bit of an outcast. Um, we also know from Jesus' interaction with her that she has had uh, a number of different uh, husbands, and now she's with a man who is not her husband. So she, you know, is, would be considered a great sinner, right? As she comes to this well, Jesus is there. He, he, he interacts with her in a way that was profoundly re respectful and, and caring and charitable and loving. He talks to her, a man to a woman, a Jewish man to a, a Samaritan woman, and he offers her water. Not the water from the well, but living water. And she, it begins to dawn on her that this Jesus is the one who offered living water to all, right? This is, this is Jesus. This is the Messiah who had come to rescue her. And she ran back to her town. And you remember what she said? Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Might this be the Messiah? Right? No, no profound argument, no tracing the history of Israel. Just come see a man who told me everything I ever did, who knew me and yet accepted me and offered me life, living water. Might he be the Messiah? Come and see for yourself. And they all went, right? All the people of town went out. You read this at the end of John chapter 4. They all go out and then they say in the end to this woman, we believe because we heard for ourselves. There's, there's so much when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to telling the story, your story, in that example of this woman. She just went and told her story. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Might he be the Messiah? You should search that out for yourself. 
Another example more recently is in this little book. This little book is uh, it's based on the Barner research that I mentioned earlier. It's written by a guy, guy named Don Everts, and the title of the book is The Reluctant Witness. And in it, he tells the story of being a college student and being on a liberal arts campus in a, in a class titled History of Christian Thought II with a, a bunch of students who themselves weren't Christians and a young professor who is clearly not a Christian. And they're talking about human sexuality. And the professor asked the question, is there anyone, he says this, how many of you believe in waiting to have sex until marriage? That was the question. And, you know, 20-year-old Don Everts kind of said he raised his hand, didn't quite get his elbow off the desk, right? Yeah, that's me. And he writes this, the professor smiled. I could imagine the thought bubble above his head. Oh, goody, another naive Christian youth to disabuse of the vestiges of their childhood religion. And just like that, he launched into a heady discourse about process theology and how the Bible is really intended to be read and what God is really all about and how static conceptions of morality or sexual ethics are really a misreading of God in the Bible. He was serious and capable and eloquent and quoting from memory lots of learned scholars. He was passionate, and all my classmates were nodding and smiling. Eventually, he brought his mini-lecture to a close, and that's when all heads swiveled back to me. I'm so glad I'm not in college anymore. Here's what he said in response. If you want to understand what I believe, you'd have to know what I experienced in high school. And just like that, I launched into a transparent telling of my own story, how I had ignored God's clear guidance on sexual practice in high school and the fallout that occurred because of that. I shared the deep personal reflection I had done after that fiasco, comparing the realities of life to the wisdom in God's word. I shared how this revealed for me the kindness of God, giving his people a blessed no when it came to sexual expression outside of the marriage bed, I shared how God's clear words were guiding me and my current girlfriend and how much more sane things were now than what I had, exper than what I had experienced in high school. I even got a little honest about my own temptations and how they made me glad for God's blessed no. The professor, he said, responded by talking about his own life. Well, that sounds great, but what do you do if you're in your early 30s and there's no prospect in sight and you are years from being married? His tone was humble, introspective, maybe a little sad or angry. No more lofty theories to hide behind. No more debate. This was him and me. See? The temptation would have been, I need to be able to go into that classroom anticipating the argument that that professor will give and be ready to respond with all the counter-arguments to everything he was throwing at me. Instead, Don Everts, the woman at the well, simply said, let me tell you about a man who knew everything I ever did. Maybe he's the Messiah. Are you ready to tell your story and invite people to meet Jesus? In what way is your story like that of the woman at the well? In what way can you say with Charles Wesley, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. In what way is your story like that? Let your life be the great apologetic for the gospel. 
And that's what Peter was saying in 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to make a defense, an apologia, to give a reason for the hope that's in you. Be willing to tell people even how much you still need Jesus every day. How much you still struggle with temptation. How much you still treat people the way that you know that you shouldn't treat them. In fact, maybe you can say to that non-Christian friend, you know, I watch you at work, I watch you at school, you treat people so much better than I do. Right? Can we be that transparent and vulnerable, that, that real with people, not just about our need for Jesus then, but our continuing and abiding need for Jesus? Will we be faithful witnesses? but also willing to witness out of weakness and humility. As this good news is increasingly true in your life, it's something that you're increasingly experiencing in your life, this love of God in Christ for you demonstrated at the cross, this will be a story that you increasingly want to tell. But third, we need to know the stories of others. We need to know the stories of others. Where does that begin? It does not begin with a great set of questions to expose the hearts of other people. It begins with love. It begins with love. It begins with love for all people. And especially love for those people that God has within your orbit, within your sphere, whether it's work or school or, or kids' sports leagues or your actual physical neighborhood, whatever it may be. It's love right? And so we need, as part of our praying, to be people who are praying, God, would you this day give me a greater sense of your love for me? And would you increase my love for you such that it spills over into and results in greater love for other people? God, would you do this work in me? that we might love, that I might love all people, but especially those who are my neighbors. Those are the people that God has brought along my path. As we do, we'll then be people who say, you know what, I'm gonna invite you into my home. I'm gonna show hospitality. I'm gonna look for opportunities to serve you. Why? Not because you're a project, because I love you. And then we will be also people who listen well who listen as other people open up and begin to share their life, share their stories. You got a little picture of it, a little glimpse in that classroom when Don Everett's professor kind of, you know, pulled back the veil into his own heart as a 30-something and said, what if there is no prospect for marriage? Right? As we share our stories and have an opportunity to listen to people tell us their story, are we really listening and I think coming back to the passage in Matthew, looking back to this prophecy from Isaiah, I think there are two ways in which Isaiah refers to darkness that can kind of provide a couple headings or categories <clears throat> in which we can listen for people's story. The first has to do with that phrase in verse 16, first part of verse 16, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And then the second half of verse 16, for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light is dawned. The people dwelling in darkness, think there of the futility of life apart from God. 
the futility of life apart from God. Without the light of Jesus Christ lighting your path, without his word to be a lamp to your feet and a light for your path, life is futile. We're walking in darkness. We're tripping, tripping over ourselves all the time. There's that sense of despair, of meaninglessness, of what's it all for anyway. Where do you hear people talking about the futility of life apart from Christ? They wouldn't phrase it that way. But as you listen to people talk about past failures that still burden them, as you listen to people talk about present trials, things that they're facing right now and don't know how to deal with, as you listen to people talk about broken dreams, things that they would hope would happen one day and it's clear they're not, you are hearing people talk about what it means to dwell in darkness. You're hearing people talk about the futility of life apart from Christ. Are you investing in people such a way and listening with such empathy that you can hear people in that way? Futility of life apart from Christ. People who dwell in the region in the shadow of death. Fear of death. Right? The author of Hebrews says that Jesus came to liberate those who were forever held in bondage by their fear of death. This is a universal thing that Jesus provides deliverance from. When people talk a, about the brevity of life, when they talk about the fragility of life, when, they, when they're scared because they're sick or someone they love is sick, when something tragic like a 9-11 happens and people are shaken, you're hearing people talk about fear of death. They're recognizing that they are those who dwell in the shadow of death. And are we, are we listening? Are we listening not just to their story and beginning to formulate a response, but are we listening to their heart? That's what it means to listen empathetically. How are they feeling in the midst of all this? Do I really know this person, not just know about them, but know their heart? And can I then begin to share my heart and how I perhaps struggle in the same way? It takes time. We want a formula. We want it to be quick. We want to be able to connect dots in people's lives. You're a sinner. You need Jesus. Jesus came. Trust him and you'll go to heaven. That does not, I mean, it might work. You know, kind of could. But mostly what people want to know is that they're loved. They want to know that they're heard. They want to know that you genuine, genuinely care about them and their welfare. And so it is not a process. It is not a canned presentation. It is you being so captured by the love of God because you recognize that God has brought you into this thing that he is doing to make all things new in his son Jesus Christ. It is you welling up in love for God because of his love shown to you in Jesus and resulting in finding a greater sense of love for other people such that you move toward them with the desire to do something that we can all get our heads around. When you love people and you love Jesus, you want nothing more than to see people who you love that don't know Jesus meet the one who has loved you. And that takes time. I love Francis Schaeffer's quote. He used to say, if I have an hour to spend with a person, I'll spend the first 55 minutes listening. Listen. Listen empathetically. Know God's story. Know your story. And know the stories of other people. And then apply that in reverse order. All right? 
Begin by listening to the stories of other people. As God gives you opportunity and you sense that it's right, share your story and lead them to God and his great story of rescue. Matthew, quoting Isaiah again, says, For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Have you ever woken someone up to catch the sunrise with you? None of you are going to be doing that for like another six months. But have you ever in the past, or could you anticipate in the future, waking someone up to catch the sunrise with you? Maybe you're on vacation, you're, you're in the mountains, you're on the beach. Maybe you're out at sea in the Caribbean on a cruise ship. Doesn't that sound nice? Right? And you decide to get up. I'm going to do my quiet time or whatever. I'm going to go spend some time on deck of the ship praying, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking to the east, and I'm watching the, the sky start to change. I'm seeing that pre-dawn light break the darkness. And I've got to go wake somebody up. Like, whether it's my spouse or my family member or my friend, whoever it is I'm there with, I've got to wake him up and say, you've got to come see this. And then you sit there together and you watch the horizon and you, and you look for the sun to break the horizon and then all is just flooded in light. Listen, as a Christian, you are there That light has dawned upon you. You are looking to the horizon. You are waiting for the sun to rise once more, for Jesus Christ to return. Who will you invite to watch the sunrise with you? It will be those whom you have grown to love. It is those to whom you are willing to empathetically listen so that you can really know them, not just know about them. It will be those that you are willing to be vulnerable, to open up and share your story with. And then ultimately take them to the great story, author, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you will will give us a, a, a burning desire for this and by us, I mean us. Lord, you know my own heart. You know the the struggles I have, you know, the desire and the fears that I wrestle with and the faulty thinking, like I got to have all the answers because I'm a pastor, I'm supposed to know this. And Lord, would you help me just to be a good listener? Would you help me to know my neighbors? Would you help me to grow in love for them because, because of your love for me? And would you do that for all of us here this morning? And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.